The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. You should all have a bibliography on Ansel. Uh, the chapter to read after this class is uh, Evans's chapter in the Medieval Theologians. Uh, G.R. Evans has written a number of books on Ansel um, over the years. So if you get hold of that this week and look at that. Has everybody got a copy of the Medieval Theologians now? No. It's out of the bookshop? Yeah, it's out. Yeah, yeah I ordered it. Are they reordering? Yeah. Right, yeah. Okay. Um, well, if you can get hold of it, if you can't, just, I suppose by getting you to read the, the chapter after the class, it's probably not quite as bad as if I was asking you to read the chapter before the class, so just bear in mind that the relaxation you have in the coming weeks because you haven't got hold of the book will be made up for uh, later in the term <laughs> by extra pressure. Uh, so the medieval theologians, two good selections of Anselm's works, the major works, edited by Brian Davis and G.R. Evans. Um, that's one of the books that I've put on the list of re, uh, books that you can choose to read for the exam. Remember, you've got to read one of those books for the exam. Uh, Anselm's Major Works is one of those books, uh, edited by Brian Davis and G.R. Evans. Uh, Brian Davis, just a few words about him, an extremely good medieval scholar. He is a fellow at um, Blackfriars in Oxford. He's a Dominican. He's written one of the best books available on Thomas Aquinas, and he's a, also a professor at Fordham University. One of these guys who's got two lucrative jobs, not just one. Um, but of course, being a member of a religious order, all his money goes straight to the order, and he just gets a basic stipend, so he's not in it for the money. Um, I also recommend the prayers and meditations of St. Anselm from Penguin, uh, because there is a great tendency, and, it, and it's even more... Uh, evident when we come to Aquinas, there's a great tendency when looking at the medieval theologians to go for those bits that are still of interest and relevance to us today and to isolate them from the person's life and writing as a whole. And that inevitably gives us a somewhat distorted picture of what the person was about in their historical context. And I strongly uh, encourage you when you're studying great theologians, either of the Middle Ages or any other era, if they produce written prayers and meditations, to look at the prayers and meditations as well, because they give you a different perspective on the thought and the writings of the man or the woman concerned. So I would strongly encourage you uh, to look at the prayers and meditations of St. Anselm in Penguin. And if there is anybody out there who wishes to suggest that they would like to use that as one of their books for the exam rather than those I've recommended. I'm open to persuasion on that, so drop me an email if you think that that would be uh, a work that you would prefer to look at. Um, on his life, the two books by Sir Richard Southern, St Anselm and his biographer. Uh, we have a very good ancient biography of Anselm by a guy called Eadma. Uh, Southern's book deals with St Anselm and his biographer Eadma and also a later uh, uh, Book, I think probably published in the early 90s, St. Anselm, A Portrait in a Landscape, which is probably the best um, biography that we have in English of Anselm. 
Those of you interested in his thought, obviously Evans' chapter of the basic reading, if you want to take it a bit further, uh, go to John Maranbon's Early Medieval Philosophy. There's a chapter or two in there on Anselm in his age. Maranbon's interest is very much in logic, so he sets Anselm within the context of uh, medieval logic. But it's extremely uh, fruitful chapter for understanding the man in his intellectual context. And there are two books by G.R. Evans. Uh, Anselm, the one by Morehouse, it's published, I think, late 80s. Uh, it's in the Great Christian Thinker series, so it's a nice all-round introduction uh, to the man. And Anselm and talking about God, a more sophisticated discussion of Anselm's contribution to theology. There is also a good book by Hopkins, a companion to the study of Anselm, which is sort of everything you need to know about Anselm and some more. I put at the bottom uh, two modern theologians to bring out the fact, I'll allude to this in the lecture, that Anselm is a theologian who continues to stimulate the thought of modern theologians. Um, Karl Barth, as you will know, in the early 1930s, claimed that his theological method was revolutionized by reading Anselm, by reading the Proslogion of Anselm. Uh, <coughs> the most recent intellectual biography of Barth has questioned that and says that Barth didn't understand his own theological development and in fact he'd made his crucial breakthroughs at some point earlier but if you're interested in seeing how a modern theologian interacts and appropriates Anselm then Barth's Fides Quirens Intellectum which is available as far as I know in a number of different reprints is well worth looking at and the other work uh, by John McIntyre, who was a theologian in the sort of 50s and 60s in Edinburgh, St. Anselm and his critics, is an attempt to reassess the cur deus homo from the perspective of modern theology. So I'm not commending the theology of either Bart or McIntyre to you. What I'm suggesting is that if you're interested in seeing how a modern theologian interacts and uses a medieval theologian, those are two places you might think of starting. The other person that you might look at is Alvin Plantinga. As you will know, the ontological proof is generally regarded to, as being discredited since Immanuel Kant. Kant. Before Kant, a lot of people thought it was wrong but couldn't quite put their, foot, couldn't quite put their finger on it. Um, Immanuel Kant is regarded as having successfully demolished the ontological argument for God's existence until Plantinga, who argues way beyond my ability to understand, but argues, as I, as I understand him to be saying, that it can be put on a sound footing. Um, I'm too much of a Thomas Aquinas man, I guess, to believe that. But, um, but you can read him uh, if you wish. I think God, freedom, and evil. Oh, God, no, it's um, The Nature of Necessity, I think, is the book you want to look at. Tormented, tormented, algebraic kind of stuff that I was glad to leave behind with my sixth form maths. But uh, you can look at it if you're so inclined. So then, books on Anselm. Any questions about that? This was it. That was my night. Any questions on that? <coughs> okay, <coughs> Anselm then. I want to give you his life. Then I want to look more broadly at the sort of social, educational context in which he operated. I want to look then, give you an overview of his writings. Then I want to focus in on some more narrowly methodological considerations when we look at Anselm. And finally, I want to look at uh, his great treatise, Cur Deus Homo, Why God Became Man. <coughs> so first of all then, his life. 
his dates. Around about 10.33 to 11.09. Son of a Lombard landowner, native of Aosta in Italy. <coughs> he went to France in 10.56. It was a pointed time where if you wanted education, you hadn't got university establishments in the way that you have them today. You had, you had the rise of cathedral schools, schools that were attached to cathedral foundations. But often when you went, it was a little bit, I suppose, like going off to do uh, postgraduate research today. You would tend to look for the particular master or specialist that you wanted to work with, and you would travel to wherever they lived. So he goes to France in 1056, and in 1059, he enters the monastic school at Beck in Normandy. Then, under the charge of a character called Lanfranc, the school was slightly different to other monastic schools in that this school allowed secular people to go to. You were not required to be a monk if you were studying at the monastic school at Beck. It was a school that not only trained monks, but also educated the sons of the local nobility and gentry. <coughs> in 1050, uh, in 1060, Anselm takes monastic vows. And this isn't insignificant, because I just want to bring out later on when we talk about Anselm's theology. Anselm's theology is a kind of fusion of monastic meditation and rigorous logical thinking. The two things go hand in hand in Anselm. That the logic is there to allow him to meditate and contemplate in a more coherent and rigorous manner. So his identity as a monk, partaking of the great medieval tradition of monastic contemplation not irrelevant to understanding his theology. As we shall see, even the proof for God's existence that he develops in his work called the Proslogion, I'll write the word down later, even the proof that a son, Karl Barth being the most uh, eminent, I guess, we say it isn't a proof at all. It's actually part of an extended meditation. So his identity as a monk is extremely important to understanding his later theology. It became very clear very, very quickly to Anselm training in this uh, monastic school that he was the most brilliant person there. Very, very soon it was clear that he was cleverer than his own teacher. It reminds me of an anecdote actually, this is an irrelevant anecdote but I'll tell it to you anyway. When I um, started teaching uh, medieval thought at Nottingham University, the former head of department was um, an ex-pupil of Paul Tillich, he was a very liberal guy. But he'd studied under Paul Tillich at Union Seminary in New York, and he told me how in one seminar he'd been questioning Tillich and had cornered him in an argument. And Tillich had just, because of course in Germany, you do not question. And afterwards, Tillich went up to him and sort of pushed him into a corner and was poking him and saying, You're extremely hostile to me, young man, what's your problem? He said, Don't you realise that I am the. And uh, John Hayward Thomas turned around to him and said, Ah, yes, but Mr. Tillich, don't you realise? that it is the job of the pupil to destroy you. <laughs> you might want to take that one home for you. So anyway, Anselm soon realised that he had great potential for destroying his teacher. But Lanfranc, <coughs> 1063, Lanfranc moves on and Anselm becomes prior at Beck. So he's rising very rapidly. You see, three years he's gone from joining the monastic order to being prior of this centre. <coughs> Lanfranc himself will become Archbishop of Canterbury 
in 1070. So Lanfranc is no fool. He is the man who's helped to revitalize and set this school on its intellectual footing. It's just that it was his fortune or misfortune, uh, I suppose, in the history of thought to encounter somebody that much brilliant, more brilliant than him uh, very early. It's around this time in the 1060s that Anselm starts to write his earliest works. His earliest works are generally prayers and meditations, letters addressed to, Lan, uh, to other monks, uh, many of them after 1070, monks who accompanied Lanfranc to Canterbury when he moved to Canterbury to take up the archiepiscopal see there. So Anselm's earliest works, meditative, contemplative, prayers, devotional. That, I think, provides the context for his later work, as I've already said. <clears throat> 1078, the abbot of Beck, Herluin, dies. Herluin's the abbot, he's the boss man at Beck, he dies in 1078, Anselm takes over. So from 1078 onwards, Anselm is head of the school at Beck. And as head of the school at Beck, he starts to enjoy a certain diplomatic career as well. Lucky man, he gets to visit England several times during this period, and he wins the favour. Those of you will know that England, of course, has only been invaded once since it's successfully in its entire history, 1066, by William the Conqueror. The last time, I think, we actually lost to the French. Um, we've generally beaten them into a cocked hat throughout history, but we did lose to them in 1066. Um, William the Conqueror, King, Anselm becomes a sort of perhaps not a friend, but certainly somebody who has the respect and the trust of William the Conqueror, William the First, King of England. So he's mixing in the highest circles, if you like, diplomatically. 1089, just giving you the bones of his life here, we'll come back to his thought in a little while. 1089, Lanfranc dies. The See of Canterbury is now vacant for four years, until 1093, when Ansel becomes Archbishop of Canterbury. I was teaching in Nottingham one day, and I, made, I was giving this lecture, and I said, Anselm becomes Archbishop of Canterbury, last decent Archbishop of Canterbury we had. Sitting on the front row is the son of the present Archbishop of <laughs> 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 I, I had not realized it at the time. Uh, so, so any sons of any Archbishop of Canterbury is here today? <laughs> no, Anselm, last decent Archbishop of Canterbury we had. Um, 1093. <clears throat> the remainder of Anselm's life is really to be absorbed by terrible church politics. Tremendous struggle going on over the rights of Rome, particularly uh, in relation to the see of Canterbury and the crown at this particular point in time. England always enjoyed a certain ability to thumb its nose at Rome because it was so difficult to actually enforce Roman policy in England because there was 23 miles of sea between England and the continent. So you get hints of that here. Anselm is the man in charge, really, of implementing papal policy in England, and he finds the crown highly resistant to that. The struggles culminate in 1098 with Anselm visiting Rome. Then in 1099, there is a Vatican Council called by the Pope at that point, Urban II. This council takes a hard line against lay investiture. Lay investiture. <coughs> lay investiture is the system whereby uh, the secular power 
has, if you like, key role in the nomination of candidates for bishoprics, symbolically indicated by the fact that the king is the man who hands over the crown, if you like. The symbolism of the procedure is that the church has power, but it only has power because the secular authorities have given it to the church. Pope, at this point, takes a strong line against that. <clears throat> the problem is, of course, that <clears throat> in England, it's sort of established practice that the king is nominating bishops. And the Archbishop of Canterbury's job is simply to consecrate those bishops that the king has already invested, whether it's pals or people who are going to be compliant to his will. The Pope puts an end to this, and it leads to further conflict between Anselm and the Crown. Anselm is recalled to England by the then King Henry I, but he adamantly refuses to consecrate those bishops that Henry has invested. The conflict rumbles on and on. He has to go back to Rome in 1103 to get a papal relaxation of the ruling so that he can operate as Archbishop of Canterbury within the crown lands of England. He fails to do so, and because he fails to get the Pope to relax his ruling, he has to remain in exile until 1107. In 1107, the Pope and King Henry come to a deal behind Anselm's back to solve the problem and effectively marginalise him. So the problem is solved, but Anselm is marginalised. He returns, however, to England in 1107. Politically, really, a bit of a spent force by this point. And he dies on the 21st of April, 1109. So, politically, his life is highly troubled. When he arrives as Archbishop of Canterbury, a situation of perpetual conflict with the Crown. But his significance lies not in his political struggles with the crown, but with the theolo theological books that he left behind. We shall see in Anselm a man who, more successfully than John Scotus last week, moves beyond a theology that is a mere citation of authorities towards something that's actually putting forward a theological rationale for doctrine and moving towards theological synthesis. And when it comes to something like his understanding of atonement, I would hazard a guess that every Western theologian who's written on atonement since Anselm is influenced by him, either from a perspective of agreeing with him or from the perspective of disagreeing with him and having to distance themselves from him. So Anselm, politically something of a disaster, theologically one of the most influential thinkers in the West after the patristic era. <clears throat> I want to talk a little about his context before we go on to look at the, the detail of his thinking, however. I can't stress enough that theology is always thought by real human beings, and human beings are always more than mere theologians. None of us compartmentalizes our lives so that part of us is intellectual, part of us is emotional, part of us is spiritual, part of us is a father, part of us is a husband, part of us is a sister, etc. We are unities. And we therefore partake of all the complexity and the messiness of the context in which we exist. None of us is free of the context in which we live. So I want to look here very briefly at the context in which Anselm operated. First point. And these aren't in any particular order of importance. They're in the order in which they came into my head while I was preparing the lecture. Pedagogical. 
I've already mentioned no universities yet. We're well on our way to having universities because of your school idea. We have no universities, we have schools. I've mentioned there was a tendency for students to seek out a particular master under whom to pursue their studies. That's an old tradition, it goes right back to classical times. Think of Socrates and Plato. Think of Augustine. If you read Augustine's Confessions, how he spends his pre-conversion life to an extent travelling around, studying under different masters. Still similarly the case here. Beck, as I've mentioned, where Anselm himself studies, is a monastic foundation. It's Benedictine, as it happens. The Benedictine order are not to be one of the most influential orders in the Middle Ages. That honour will go to the Franciscans and the Dominicans, and later, of course, in the Renaissance, to the Jesuits. But Beck, at this point in time, it's a Benedictine foundation, and it is uh, unique or extremely interesting from the perspective that it teaches uh, not just those taking monastic orders, but also the sons of nobility as well. Lanfranc himself, the man under whom Anselm studies, is an interesting character. He engaged with a guy called Beringer. Beringer argued against the real physical presence of Christ in the sacrament, this idea that in the wine and the bread, Christ's humanity is really physically present. Beringer argued against that on the basis of what we got naive realism. The same kind of arguments that you often get in Protestant circles today. Hey, if it tastes like bread, it crumbles like bread, it goes mouldy like bread, it should be bread. If it tastes like wine, if it smells like wine, if you drink a gallon of it and get drunk, hey, chances are kind of naive realism. Of course, medieval Catholicism is far too sophisticated really to be vulnerable to those kind of arguments. But you do hear them, hear them today. <clears throat> Lanfranc's response is interesting to Berengar. He argues that his preferred response to him would simply be to cite biblical proof texts and support them with patristic proof texts. But he also acknowledged, though he did not carry out very successfully, acknowledged, he said, the need to use logic, the need to analyse language. And that points forward towards Ansel, this idea that theology is not simply about trotting out biblical texts. It is not simply about finding your authoritative father. It is also about engaging your grey matter, being beyond authoritative texts towards some kind of doctrinal rationale and doctrinal synthesis. Seems kind of obvious to us now, I suppose. But at the time, it was a relatively interesting suggestion. Pedagogical context then, we've done the institution, we've done the Lanfranc, the man who lies directly behind Anselm. I think also the rising interest in logic. And John Marenbaum has a nice quotation about logic. <clears throat> He highlights the fact that uh, at this particular point in time, 11th century, uh, all decent theologians put the claims of faith above those of logic. What do they mean by that? Do they mean that Christian faith is non-logical, illogical, contradictory to logic? No, Marenbon makes this point very nicely. He says, to put religious claims above those of logic merely involves objecting to an inappropriate application of logic to theology. Logic does not, like pagan philosophy, offer a system of ideas which rivals those of Christianity. It provides a set of tools for thought. 
So when these guys think about logic, they're not thinking about some overarching metaphysical system that is essentially competing with Christianity. What they're thinking about is a series of tools for analyzing language, for analyzing reality, that allow them to explore that reality more deeply. So when they say that Christian faith claims are beyond logic, they're not saying that they're necessarily illogical. They're saying that logic is to be used, if you like, within the context of faith, rather than a means of establishing the basis of faith. And this we'll see in Anselm. When Anselm comes to theology, he starts within the context of faith and devotion and uses logic to explore the implications of what he already believes. <coughs> so then, that's first part of the context, pedagogical. Secondly, philosophical, more briefly. For those interested in the grand sweep of medieval thought, Anselm exhibits certain tendencies that are of interest. Uh, they're probably deathly boring to the rest of us, but I will mention them for the sake of fulfilling all righteousness. Anselm is <laughs> undoubtedly a Platonist. I personally don't see how the ontological proof makes any sense unless you're a Platonist. You have to have some kind of commitment to a universe where the ideal, the immaterial ideal, is more real than the material phenomenon. Because it's quite clear in the ontological proof for God's existence that Anselm makes a move between concept and reality that I think we would simply, or I would simply regard as illegitimate today. But for Anselm, he can make that move because he's speaking to a world where concepts are, in some ways, more real than realities, phenomena. So he's a Platonist. Secondly, he believes in universals, real universals. One of the great debates that rumbles on throughout the Middle Ages, and Fred Copleston, the great historian of medieval philosophy, says this is the central debate of medieval philosophy. It's the single most important thing going on in medieval philosophy is the status of universals. Humanity, what does it mean? Is humanity merely found in individuals? Is it simply a word that is, if you like, invented to help me categorize you lot? You're all humans. You all possess humanity. Does the word refer simply to what I see in each of you? Or is there some higher ideal, which, if you like, you all participate, that makes you humans? Ansel is unashamedly a belief, in uh, a belief in universals. The idea that there is a universal humanity in which you all participate. It has, of course, theological significance. Because if you don't believe there is such a thing as universal human nature, I think you have to reconstruct your understanding of what's going on in the Incarnation. Anselm is able to make a distinction between the person of Christ and the human nature of Christ. And say that the Logos, the second person of the Trinity, has assumed human nature. And therefore, that has some kind of significance. If there is no such thing as human nature, just lots and lots of unconnected, he constructs how you it can be done because it was done. It does create problems. So it does have theological significance. I mention it now because we'll be touching on the problem of universals as the weeks go by. Anselm, most definitely uh, <coughs> a realist as opposed to a nominalist on that issue. And third point, the social framework. Anselm's context is undoubtedly that of feudalism. 
And we shall see that this shapes in ways in which he was unaware. It shapes the way he thinks about God. There are categories he uses, and I think that we are justified in saying, well, are these categories that he draws from the Bible, or are they categories that he's drawing from the society around him? Are they illegitimate impositions upon the biblical material, or are they merely expressing the ideas of the Bible in a way that is accommodated to the society of his day? All kinds of questions that arise with Ansel. Feudalism provides him with his understanding of how the world is. Feudalism is a social arrangement characterized by a bilateral arrangement between the sovereign and the serf, or between lord and vassal. We live 800 years ago. As I'm telling the story, I can make myself the lord, and you lot the vassals. I am your lord. You are my vassals. I'm therefore entitled to expect certain things from you. I can expect military service from you. If my neighbour attacks me, there are no standing armies. If my neighbour attacks me, I can require you to fight on my behalf. I can expect you to be loyal to me, not selling my secrets or my strategic plans to my neighbours. I can expect you to pay me some money. I can expect you to pay me a kind of tax. And I can expect you to give me hospitality. I ride up to your door early one morning, bang on your door and say, cook me some egg and bacon for breakfast. You do it, you don't complain. I'm your lord, I'm entitled to expect hospitality at your hands. But it's not an entirely one-way relationship. This isn't dictatorship. You are entitled to expect certain things from me. If you have children, then you die. You are entitled to expect me to protect those children. As your Lord, I'm under obligation to make sure that your children are protected. I am required to provide you with land that you can work to generate an income, both to support your own children and to pay me something from. And I'm also required to make sure that you have a safe environment in which to do that. I will protect you. You work the land for your family and for me, and I will protect you. So it's a bilateral arrangement where I can expect certain things from you and you can expect certain things in return from me. It is a contract. If I fail to fulfill my part of the contract, you can walk away. You can go and put yourself into vassalage with somebody else if I don't protect you, if I mistreat you. Conversely, if you fail to support me, to give me your loyalty, you fail to fight for me when I ask you to fight for me, then I'm entitled to take retribution. I get the impression of listening to this sort of um, inner city stuff, it goes on the whole idea of disrespect. You could translate, it's a kind of feudal, almost a feudal idea, this disrespecting, dishonouring. If you dishonour me, I'm entitled, if not obliged, to do some may involve putting you to the sword, but I'm entitled to do that. But in practice, and this is interesting, it's interesting for Ansel, in practice, when the relationship broke down, generally speaking, you, know, you let me down, I don't just kick you off my land or chop your head off or whatever takes my fancy that day. Generally speaking, I allow you to do something that restores my honor. I can restore my honor by putting you to the sword, or I can restore my honor by saying, pay me X amount. Give me so much of your grain extra. That will restore my honour. 
So in general, when the relationship breaks down, the parties don't walk away because it is regarded as more fitting, more honourable, to try to find some way of restoring it. You can see, of course, those of you who read Ansel on the atonement, where all this is heading. There is much in Anselm's understanding of atonement that reflects the social mores and patterns of medieval feud. So the, the three things then I wanted to bring out. Pedagogical context, the school at Beck. The philosophical context, Platonism and realism. And thirdly, the social context of feudalism that shapes the way Anselm thinks about the world. We can also say as an aside, this is a period of time where there's increasingly uh, efficient agrarian economy developing, surpluses are being generated, urbanization is starting to take place. So we stand on the cusp of the rise of the great medieval cities and on the rise, on the cusp, if you like, of the rise of the history as it points towards <coughs> the universities of later medievalism. Anselm's writings. I'm just going to give you a brief overview here and then I want to look at one in more detail. Anselm's writing, I've already mentioned significant numbers of prayers and meditations. Don't ignore them. Go and look at them. There's a clear link throughout Anselm between devotion and theology. You shall see that, examples of that a little bit later on. He wrote three great works. The Monologion, the Proslogion, and the Cur Deus Homo. Why God became man. The Monologion deals with an attempt to meditate upon the essence of God. <clears throat> and it culminates in a discussion of God's Trinitarian nature. Means my classes before will know one of my um, axes to grind is the non-Trinitarian nature of so much of what passes for Christian theology and Christian practice. Uh, we live in a world where we are formally Trinitarian in terms of our confession, but practically most of us are Unitarians and we don't really know what to do with it. One of the ways you can start to solve that problem is going away and reading the Monologion by Anselm and seeing there a meditation upon the essence of God that culminates in this great meditation and logical reflection upon the Trinitarian nature of God. The fact that God is one and he is three. <clears throat> Interestingly, I've already made this point a couple of times, but it takes its cue from the point of view of wanting to meditate more fittingly upon God and then goes off into a logical explanation of God. There is no division in Anselm's mind between the demands of devotion and the demands of rigorous theology. <clears throat> Second great work, the Proslogion. These works, by the way, come from 1078, 1079. The Proslogion. Again, it's a meditation upon God, culminates in the famous ontological proof of God's existence. God is that than which nothing greater can be conceived. God is that than which nothing greater can be conceived. On one level, it's something of a novelty. The whole idea of proving God is somewhat pointless in the 11th century, being as everybody believes in him anyway. And that's, you know, that's, uh, I'm not being facetious there. People do. The whole idea of atheism as a rejection of God's actual existence really comes a little bit later in intellectual history. Stephen Charnock in the 17th century writes about atheism. He says, when I'm writing about atheism, I'm writing about people who know that God exists but reject his demands upon their life. Practical atheism. He says, if you're looking for real atheists who don't believe God exists, he said, 
He said, I think there were only two, and they lived in ancient Greece. So never cross these guys' minds that there were people out there who rejected God's existence. So the whole idea of proving is somewhat odd in the 11th century. <coughs> you get it in Aquinas, of course, as well. <coughs> Excuse me. And it has led some to query whether what Anselm is doing is actually proving God's existence. And Karl Barth famously says, no, this isn't God's existence. It's really an exploration of the belief that, if you like, it's an internal exploration of the faith. So, the famous ontological proof, it's there in the proslogion. <clears throat> the consensus, however, I think, is probably not with Bart. The consensus is that in some sense, it is a proof, as we would perhaps understand. I won't go into the details now. I, I don't find the ontological proof very convincing, but the idea is that even the atheist, even the fool, has a conception of what the sentence means. And since... Anything that exists has to be greater than anything that doesn't exist. Therefore, that than which nothing greater can be conceived must exist. There's a kind of, I think, a slippy move there between concept and reality, which I say is much, much easier to make if you're a Platonist. 20th century person, 21st century person steeped in postmodernism or analytic philosophy or whatever. But don't ask me about it. I'm not a philosopher. Go and ask Dr. Oliphant or go and read Alvin Plantinga. Why God Became Man, 1098. <clears throat> Rationale for the Incarnation. We'll talk about the significance of that a little bit later on. I'll give you a little list now of just run very, very quickly through his other works. De Grammatico. A logical treatise. An analyzing the question of whether white, words such as white, can refer to substances as well as accidents if you like, a noun as well as an adjective. <clears throat> it's a typical medieval preoccupation with how language operates. Three small theological treatises on truth, on free will, on the fall of the devil. To cut a long story short, <clears throat> on truth, Anselm comes to the conclusion they're cast in the forms of dialogues. It's a sort of classic Socratic come Augustinian idea that you have. There's a conversation going on between the master and the student in order to come to an understanding of the point in hand. On truth, Anselm argues that truth lies in statements which reflect what is the case. The book is on the lectern, is a true statement. But it can also refer to actions. When it refers to actions, it refers to actions that are in accordance with what should be. So not killing somebody is a true action in the sense that you shouldn't kill somebody. What is fitting? It's in accordance with what is fitting. The whole idea of fittingness, which is central in many ways to feudalism, is central to Anselm's understanding of theology. The work on free will is interesting because of the way it distinguishes different kinds of freedom. One of the great contributions of medieval theology to Western theology in general is its discussions of freedom and necessity and the realisation that there are different kinds of freedom and there are different kinds of necessity. And Anselm stands right at the very start of this tradition. Does man have free will? How many times does that one get trotted out in conversations among Christians or between Christians and non-Christians? It's a very misleading question because there are very many different kinds of free will. That you can. Am I not free because I can't jump off the ground and land on the moon? I'm not free to do that. Does that mean I haven't got free? There are all kinds of 
types of freedom and necessity out there. And Ansel starts the ball rolling, if you like, on discussion of these things. He also, taking up arguments from in On Truth, argues that whether a thing is right or wrong, whether an action is right or wrong, good or evil, depends on how fitting it is. The action itself, if you like, the physical action, in some cases, is not what makes it right or wrong. It's the context that determines whether it's right or wrong. The Fall of the Devil discusses the origin of evil, the old problem of how do you account for the reality of evil in a world created by a good God who cannot behold sin, etc., etc.? Anselm gets around the problem by saying, well, the, the devil actually desires something that is good. He desires to be like God. That is a good thing to desire to be like. We should all desire to be godly and godlike. The problem is, he desires it in an inappropriate, he desires it in a way that is not fitting. He desires to be like God in order to usurp God in order to be autonomous. <clears throat> on the incarnation of the word, these are just, if you want to look at these treaties, they're all in the little book by Evans. <coughs> it was pitched to distinguish his teaching from that of a monk called Roskelin, who will come across uh, a little bit later because he was the teacher of Peter Abelard. Distinguished himself from Roskelin by arguing that uh, Trinitarian theology does not commit you to the idea that God is three separate things. Nor does it commit you to the idea that Father, Son, and Holy Ghost all became incarnate in Christ. Roskillin sort of poses the question to the extent that either you believe God is three separate things, or you believe that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost were all incarnate in Christ. Anselm is attempting a defense of classic Trinitarian theology over against those objections. Two more works on procession of the Holy Spirit, procession of the Holy Spirit, and on the virginal conception. <laughs> Oh, sorry, De Concordia. Just very briefly, on procession of the Holy Spirit, again, argument for the Western order of procession, the Spirit proceeds from the Son. We'll talk about that when we come to Eastern Orthodoxy. Um, De Concordia, an attempt to harmonise divine foreknowledge, predestination and human free will. Just been pointed out to me, actually, the, the um, close parallels there are between feudalism and the Mafia, modern-day Belfast, all of these places. Um, Somebody asked me, actually, if Westminster Seminary was a feudal system. And I think, yeah, you know, it's, um, the trustees give me a job and I agree with everything they say. That's the kind of, um, basically, how it operates, I think. Um, so, I'm actually going to leap ahead for the, because of the pressures of time. I may come back to look at the... Uh, I may come back to look at the little treatise on the virginal conception, but I want to speak um, now about some general, general method of Anselm's work. <clears throat> he has a good, uh, interesting statement near the start of the Monologion. For those of you interested in looking this statement up, it's in the major works volume that I've put on your bibliography, uh, page five. <clears throat> Some of my brethren, he says, have often and earnestly asked me to write down, here's the crucial clause, as a kind of model meditation. Some of the things I've said, and to do this in everyday language, on the subject of meditating upon the essence of the divine, and on some other subjects bound up with meditation. Anselm's first major work there opens really with a statement of intent that what he's going to do is 
to extend an extended logical meditation upon the essence of God. There is no division in his mind between his identity as a monk and his identity as a theologian. Oh, sorry, I forget, I, I'm going to have to break at this point. I've completely forgotten Virginia. Sorry to announce the... <laughs> kind of breaks my flow. There was a guided educational visit to a conservative Jewish synagogue on February the 23rd, that's a week tomorrow, um, meet in va room one Vantill Hall at 20 to nine. Um, the service will take place between 10 and 12 noon. Uh, the guy, the trip will be led by the director of AMMI ministry, the Reverend Ron Elkin, who was brought up in a Jewish family. Um, transportation carpool will be arranged among ourselves. The contact person is Virginia Yip, who's in class here. So um, hassle her about it, don't hassle her. <coughs> So anyway, to go back to major writings, uh, page five, the context is both pedagogical and devotional, but the method is going to be rigorously logical. Second point, Anselm's method is interesting because it marks a development from what we've seen before. We saw it a little bit in a kind of heterodox stroke heretical way last week with John Scottus. <clears throat> Anselm is going to use authorities. He's going to use texts of scripture. He's going to use pieces from the fathers that are available to him. But he's also going to use rational argumentation to move theology forward to a doctrinal synthesis. When I use the word rational there, <coughs> I'm not using it in some kind of post-Cartesian sense about rationalism. I'm simply meaning that he's going to use a process that involves logical procedures to work out what the implications of Christian doctrine and dogma are. This is a practice that goes right back to Origen. Origen makes reference to the interconnected nature of Christian doctrine and how things can be inferred from that interconnected nature. So what Anselm is doing has good patristic precedent. But he is going to move beyond mere citation of authorities towards doctrinal synthesis. He's no radical, however. I've got another quotation from here. Major Writings, page 6. He talks about the treatise that he's about to present to the public. In the course of frequent re-readings of this treatise, he says, I have been unable to find anything which is inconsistent with the writings of the Catholic Fathers, and in particular with those of the Blessed Augustine. Catholic Fathers, Blessed Augustine in particular, still authorities for Anselm. What he has written is not inconsistent with what they themselves have said and written. What he does not say, however, is that he does not go beyond them in some way. He is not going to be content simply to referring the monks under his care to reading Augustine on the Trinity. He is interested in addressing their specific concerns, using scripture, using Augustine, and using methods of analysis of language and of logic in order to elaborate and expound the doctrine of the Trinity within his particular context. That is the hallmark, I think, of Anselm's self-conscious method. He is not <clears throat> in the game of working from nature in order to build up some kind of basis for faith. That's not his game at all. He accepts as basic the Catholic faith, uses his logic and his reason to explore that Catholic faith. And that Catholic faith is defined for him by the scriptures, by the teaching of the fathers, and by the teaching of the church. And Anselm would not have seen any major division between the two, between the three things. We will look at the issue of tradition later on. 
but I think it is a popular Protestant misconception <clears throat> that Catholics believe tradition is a kind of separate stream of revelation from Scripture. It's a bit more subtle than that. Catholic Church in the Middle Ages regarded its tradition as, if you like, an exposition and an elaboration of Scripture and the implications of Scripture. Did not see it as a self-standing entity, separate to Scripture. So when I think Anselm talks about the Catholic faith, he's talking about all of these things. Teaching of Scripture, teaching of the Church, the teaching of the Fathers. But he's not, in his mind, seeing that there's any problem in relating those three. I think now, with a more critical attitude to history, we look back and we see the problem of establishing consensus within the Fathers. We can see the problems of establishing consensus within the continual teaching of the Church. But these are not problems of which Anselm was aware or with which he was particularly burdened. So the content of the Church's Catholic faith is always taken as basic, and reason is used to offer a rationale as to why the faith is, on its own terms, reasonable why it all fits together. He says this, Major Writings, page 235. This is from On the Incarnation of the Word. No Christian, he says, ought to argue how things that the Catholic Church sincerely believes and verbally professes are not so. I.e., it's not your job as a theologian to tell the Church that it ain't so. But by always adhering to the same faith without hesitation. Notice how, notice how he describes this by adhering to the same faith without hesitation, by loving it, and by humbly living according to it, these are not simply intellectual categories he's bringing in here, a Christian ought to argue how they are, inasmuch as one can look for reasons. I.e., you can give a reason for your faith. If one can understand, one should thank God. If one cannot understand, one should bow one's head in veneration, rather than sound off trumpets. Nice little blow there, that just because you don't understand it doesn't necessarily make it wrong. That's basically what he's saying there. Somebody once said to me, you must remember there's a difference between losing an argument and being wrong. Losing an argument may simply be a function of knowing less than the person you're arguing against. It doesn't necessarily mean they're right. <clears throat> so theology for Anselm becomes the rational exploration, internal exploration, of the church's creedal confession. And there are, I think, three underlying notions in Anselm uh, on this point. One, there is acceptance of the faith. And this is what appealed, I think, so much to Karl Barth, that Anselm was not engaging, as he saw it, in apologetics. He was simply explaining why he believed the way he did. Acceptance of the faith. Secondly, a belief that the faith is coherent that it is subject to an extent to rational exploration from within. We'll see that with the question of why God became man. Anselm thinks that you can give an account, a reasonable account of why God should become man. And thirdly, a realisation that this will involve like a doctrinal synthesis. It will involve statements that go beyond, in their verbal expression, that go beyond scripture and that go beyond the Father's, and yet do not betray scripture or the fathers. To the simplest level, all he's saying is, there's more than we've already got. We can elaborate doctrine further than it has been elaborated so far. And Ansel, I think, is acutely aware of three, that he's going to go beyond the fathers. 
He says at the start of Why God Became Man, and the quotation is on uh, Major Writings 260 to 261. He says this, Even the fathers, because the days of men are short, were not able to say all that they could have said if they had lived longer. I.e. saying, why do we take the fathers an exhaustive statement of the Christian faith? They were mere men and they lived a finite amount of time. They didn't have time to elaborate the infinite truth of God's word. And the logic of truth is so copious that it cannot be exhausted by mortals. There's always more that can be said. I am attempting, he says, for a little while, insofar as the heavenly grace deigns to allow me, to arise to contemplate the logic of our beliefs. I want to understand how the church arranges its doctrine. I want to understand how the church uses words like oneness and threeness and original sin. I'm not interested in trashing what the church is saying. I'm interested in being more self-conscious in my understanding of what the church is saying. And that brings me to my next point, which sometimes isn't brought out very clearly, it seems to me, in books on Anselm. And that is, it is quite clear, when Anselm talks about theological method, he is not simply talking about intellectual process. Time and again in Anselm, when he makes these little statements of his method, he talks also about the practical Christian life of devotion. No more than one would expect from somebody in a monastic environment. No more, one might say, than one would expect from somebody who reads the scriptures and sees the importance of obedience within the scriptures. Acceptance of the faith is more than just intellectual assent. When Anselm says you can't do theology without first accepting the faith, he's not simply meaning, I don't think, hey, I have an intellectual commitment to the fact that Christ rose from the dead. Anselm is talking about an existential commitment of your whole life and being to that point. Theology for Anselm takes place within the context of a life of practical obedience. He's a monk. He's bound to say that. And dare I say it, that, you know, we're okay, many of us are good Protestants, we're inherently suspicious of monasticism, but I think they're onto something there. I think the idea that theology can be divorced from the way you live your life is highly problematic highly problematic hearts says Anselm need first to be cleansed by faith I haven't got a page number this I'll look it up and see if I can get you a page number though if you read the whole book you're bound to come across it sooner or later anyway Um, hearts need first to be cleansed by faith and eyes need first to be illumined by observance of the precepts of the Lord your eyes are opened what by God giving you a greater intellectual understanding no by observing the precepts of the Lord And not only is the mind without faith and obedience to the commandments of God prevented from rising to understand higher things, i.e. if you're not being faithful and obedient, you will simply not be able to intellectually rise to higher things. But the mind's endowed understanding is also sometimes taken away and faith itself subverted when upright conscience is neglected. End quote. Daily walk of principled obedience is central to Anselm's theological method. And it is interesting, if you look back at the history of theology, particularly before the Enlightenment, how practical dimensions of the Christian life are important, not just to the Catholics, but to the later Reformed tradition as well. If you look at Reformed prolegomena, quite often 
The notion of obedience is there as a prerequisite to doing theology proper because it, the recognition is that theology is not an intellectual end in itself. The end of theology is a deeper appreciation and contemplation of God as he is and as he's revealed himself to be towards us. And therefore, there are profound, practical and existential dimensions to theology that mere grabbing hold of logical procedures does not give you. Anselm isn't guilty of that. He's quite clear. If you're going to do theology proper, you need your logical training, but you also need to be living a life of daily obedience. I particularly like J.H. Alsted, uh, the Reformed theologian, because he actually includes physical fitness as part of his, in his prolegomena to theology. This is just an irrelevant aside. You can impress people with this at parties. Reformed parties are really quite boring, but you know, <laughs> we may occasionally attend them, I don't know. Um, Alsted actually includes physical fitness in his um, presupposition of doing theology properly. I think the body's got to be functioning properly as well. So these guys have a very holistic view, if you like, of theological method. Um, and I will certainly campaign, I think, for um, five-mile dawn runs for MDiv students going through the ministry um, by, at any length of time at Westminster. So, that then is Anselm. It's a typical fusion. It's a fusion that will become typical. And if there's anything... You know, my job here, I, I see partly, is to try to convince you that the medievals are worth interacting with. Do that at an intellectual level. That's quite easy because much of medieval theology is simply picked up by the Reformed and set in a Protestant context later on. But also, I think there's a devotional aspect there that is important. You don't have to go down the roots of radical mysticism to appreciate the practical, contemplative dimension. Anselm is a typical fusion of devotion and rigorous thinking that marks the combination of monastic piety and higher learning in the Middle Ages. So then, I want to look now at Curdeus Homo. Why God Became Man. Basic text that everyone should read because it sets up discussion about the incarnation uh, in such a way that discussion will never be quite the same again. Uh, and the Anselmic argument is used by both Catholics and Reformed in later theology in different ways, in different contexts, to generate Christology. In terms of its style, it's cast as a dialogue between Anselm and a monk with the unfortunate name of Bozo. I don't know if that means... Does it have the same kind of bad connotation? I guess it does from the response. Bozo has kind of bad connotations in Britain. Um, my weak joke is always there's no doubt about who wins this particular dialogue. Um, it was probably Anselm's maintenance man. He could well have been, Bob. He probably wore a baseball cap as well, I have a suspicion. But, uh, <laughs> I have to say, that is one of the strangest things about American culture, that people like wear suits and baseball caps. It's quite remarkable. And I was in the mall the other week, and there's a shop that sells nothing but baseball caps. <laughs> Absolutely unbelievable. Um, my dad always, you know, refers to them as IQ reducers. He says, you wear them on that way around, he said it reduces your IQ by 50%, turn it around that way and you're completely brain. <laughs> so, uh, that's, just, um, that's just a bit of token cultural insensitivity for you. Um, I, m I must admit that uh, baseball caps, I was, watching, I was watching the TV the week and President Bush was speaking and there was a, guy, a bunch of guys behind him looking as if they'd just come out of extras from Bonanza, all wearing cowboy hats with suits. And this was the 
American Beef Producers Association. <laughs> quite, quite remarkable. Anyway. Um, so, anyway, Curdeus Homo, cast as a dialogue. You probably better edit that off the uh, tape. I mean, you might find the uh, seminary being sued or something. Um, various targets in Anselm's Curdeus Homo. Boso comes to Anselm and says to him, it's a good Anselmic question, Brother, I believe the incarnation, but I want to be able to explain why it had to be so. So Anselm isn't setting out to say, well, look, Boso, I'm going to prove to you that God became man. He's going to say, okay, we accept that God became man. I'm going to try and explain why. And the reason is there are various people for whom that would be a helpful apologetic ploy, if you like. Um, there are Jews, for a start. Jews who accept some of the basic premises, as Anselm would see it, of his arguments. The existence of God, the existence of sin, the need for some kind of redemption. Um, there are also the Platonists. The problem the Platonists have with Anselm is it's unbecoming that the ideal, the ultimate being, the ultimate real, God the Spirit, should take human flesh. It involves, if you like, the material world involves less existence and being than the immaterial world, then for God to become material involves him in some ways becoming less of a God. So it's a problem for Platonists as well. <clears throat> but you also have Boso himself, as I've said, who simply wants a rationale as to why God became man. <clears throat> Those of you who've read any, uh, any length in the patristic authors will know that Christology and Trinitarianism are crucial issues, but there is no real consensus among the fathers about why God became human. Why did God take flesh? Well, it was to redeem the flesh. Yeah, they agree with that. What was not assumed was not redeemed, etc., etc. But why was that the case? And one of the more popular views that Anselm sets out here to attack is the idea that the devil, the fall, somehow won humanity over to the devil's power. And the devil had to be bought off in some way for humanity to be brought back into a right relationship with God. And there are various ways this was constructed. If you look at Gregory of Nyssa, one of my favourite fathers, Gregory of Nyssa, if you look at his catechism, he talks there about um, the atonement defeating the devil because the devil is tricked. The devil is tricked into thinking he's one. Tricked because he doesn't realise that Jesus is, is doing what he's doing. And this is the kind of background against which Anselm is reacting. Anselm doesn't like this. He doesn't like devil ransom theories because it implies that the devil has some kind of rights over man. For Anselm, that's a wrong way of looking at the devil. The devil has no rights, ultimately. And to construct a theory of atonement on the basis that the devil has some kind of right or hold over humanity that means he's got to be bought off in some way is fundamentally wrong-headed. Anselm wants to construct an argument that is much more theological or theocentric in its approach. For Anselm, the reason for atonement must be sought not in the devil's rights, but in God's rights. So that's how he's going to go about it. And he starts his method by saying that he's going to, he's going to follow the method Remoto Cristo. Is Taylor here? Taylor Marshall? Remoto Cristo. You're a Latin scholar. What does it mean? It's an ablative absolute. I'll give you a clue. With Christ removed. In order, 
And remember what Anselm's game is theologically. He's interested in working out the relationships between different doctrines and seeing what kind of interesting things can be generated by doing that. What he wants to do in this text is to take Christ out of the equation. To say, okay, you believe, I'm not trying to prove to you that Christ became a man, but let's put him to one side for a minute. We're going to assume a lot of other doctrines, like God's sovereignty, God's nature, sin, humanity. We're going to assume all these things. And we're going to work from those items of faith to see where the incarnation fits into the picture. We're going to explore, if you like, the inner dynamics, the inner structure of Christianity by removing part of it and then seeing how it, you know, how we can work from the others to reach this point. So we remove Christ from the equation. Okay, you believe in him, you believe he's incarnate, you believe he died for your salvation, great. Put him to one side for a minute and let's work with other things. Well, there are various now presuppositions that Ansel brings into play. First of all, he brings into play the idea that God is both honourable and merciful. God has attributes of honour and mercy. Because he asked the question early on in the dialogue, would it not be possible, given that I have sinned and dishonoured God, would it not be possible for God, because he's sovereign and could do anything, <coughs> simply to will to forgive man, restore him like that? God is sovereign, after all, he can do anything, short of you know, logical contradictions such as, you know, God can do anything he wishes. So why doesn't he? Well, Anselm's argument is, you've got to remember that God is not just merciful, he's also honourable. And that honour and mercy, they are, if you like, distinctions that we make in God in our mind. But they don't exist in God as distinct bits put aside. God is both fully honourable and merciful. And whatever way God develops of solving the problem of the way that sin and humanity dishonoured him, has to take into account not only also his honour, God's honour must be restored. <clears throat> Why must it be restored? <clears throat> it is fitting. This is a word you will see time and again in Anselm's Kyrgyz and elsewhere in Anselm. It is fitting that it should be so. It is not fitting for God simply to forgive humanity. He has been dishonoured. If you spit on the wife of your feudal lord, it is not fitting that he should simply forgive you. He has been dishonoured. Payment must be made. So Anselm is using, if you like, he sees no distinction in some ways in his mind between the way that God operates and the way that a feudal lord must operate. It is crucial then that whatever way is developed for salvation must be both honourable and merciful. God could, of course, left humanity to be damned. One way of him having his honour restored would be simply to allow humanity to wallow in its own sin and then extract infinite punishment from it. That's one possible option. That is less fitting. It is more fitting that God should restore the glory of his creation than he should allow humanity's sin, in some sense, to have the last word and spoil it. So it is not fitting that God forgives simply by fiat, neither is it fitting that God simply leaves humanity to wallow in its own sin. So we have a situation there where, strictly speaking, salvation is not necessary because God could have allowed humanity to wallow in its own sin. But it is better that he does not. So God, if you like, will save. It's more fitting than he does so. How is he going to do it? He's got to do it in a manner that makes sure that his honour is restored. 
There's a twofold problem here. <clears throat> Who has been dishonored? God. What is the value of that dishonor of God? Well, Anselm says the problem. He says, if let's say there are an infinite number of universes out there, you're standing here, and God says to you, do not turn around. Somebody else comes along to you and says, if you don't turn around, that infinite number of universes, you turn around? Do you turn around? Why not? Just is. <laughs> Just is. Somebody says, if you don't turn around, all these universes are going to be destroyed. So, oh, you know, got a nuclear bomb out there, obviously. Anselm didn't have access to these concepts. But you see the point. What Anselm is trying to say is that it is more important to obey God than to disobey him, no matter what the cost of obeying him is. Carry that over then to the idea of sin and dishonour. How much dishonour has been done to God by a sin? How can you quantify dishonouring the infinite God? It's one thing to spit on the finite wife of your finite feudal lord. It's another thing to dishonour the infinite God. So the problem is that if God's honour is to be restored, an infinite payment must be made. Next, Anselm doesn't use this analogy, but I will do to try to bring it out, and bring out his point. Secondly, okay, infinite man needs to be restored. But we've also got the question of who's responsible for doing it. It is not enough, if you've dishonoured God, for God to punish squirrels, or badgers, or whatever, in order to restore his honour. It's not relevant. It's irrelevant. God's honour must be restored by the guilty party. The guilty party must be involved in the restoration of God. So, <clears throat> payment is due from humanity. So the payment's got to be infinite, but it's got to be paid by a human being. Because, of course, human beings are the ones who dishonour God. This, of course, leads to the obvious problem. Humans are finite, so they can't make the payment. God is infinite, so he shouldn't make the payment. The solution, next step of the argument, the God-man. Jesus Christ is both human and therefore can make the payment in terms of those responsible to make the payment, and he's also, the value of his repayment will be sufficient to restore the honour of God. Anselm's argument takes place, so I've given you a very, very short and concise version of it there. But that is essentially how Anselm works towards it. <clears throat> and what is it about Christ that makes him? Well, Christ lives a perfect life. Therefore, Christ as man has fully honoured God in his own life for himself. As a human being, Christ is obliged to walk a perfect life just for himself, which he does. But Christ does something more. The death of Christ in Anselm that generates, if you like, the surplus. The death is a work, we might say using Catholic terminology, it's a work of supererogation. It's a work above and beyond that which is necessary for Christ himself. It creates, if you like, a whole storehouse of merit that can be distributed and given to others. Because the problem with you guys and with me is, even if now we started living perfect lives, we wouldn't generate enough perfection by the end of our lives, even to have paid our individual debt, let alone anybody else's. But Christ walks the perfect life and therefore fulfills his own obligations of honour towards God, and then he dies. And 
and gains merit that others who have not walked that perfect life might have that merit transferred to them. Comments on this. I think the first point I want to make, make um, notice the importance of Anselm's realism. The idea of human nature, the universal human nature, is important to Anselm. I don't think he really discusses it so much as he brings it in other treatises, but clearly it underlies what he said. The fact that Christ um, can represent you and me depends upon the fact that it is human nature that is under obligation to God. And therefore, by assuming human nature, God is able to do something about it. He doesn't assume my person or your person. What we share in common with Christ is not our personhood. We are different people. What we share in common with him is our nature. Secondly, and I suppose this might be a, 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 something of a criticism, though I think the, the criticism can be strongly attenuated, um, it tends to focus attention on the death of Christ rather than upon the life of Christ. And that's one of the criticisms that has been traditionally made of Anselm. I don't, I don't actually feel the force of that particularly for a number of reasons. Um, one, I think that Anselm's... Um, Anselm is arguing along fairly narrow lines, a fairly narrow question. He's not writing a comprehensive summary of theology. He's not attempting to produce a perfectly balanced understanding of the Incarnation. He's attempting to provide a reason why the Incarnation took place. And it seems to me, and, and this is what happens in later Middle Ages, that you can take Anselm's argument about satisfaction and combine it with other emphases in the Incarnation. That it sits quite happily in Thomas Aquinas with other emphases on the importance of the Incarnation that bring out the importance of other aspects of Christ's life, his teaching, etc., etc. So Anselm, yes, in this particular text, it leads to a focus upon the death of Christ. But the argument itself can still be used within a more balanced context. <clears throat> Thirdly, and I think this is the crucial question and one that you know, people have wrestled with for years, the whole idea of fittingness and relation to honour. To what extent does this represent a legitimate extrapolation from biblical teaching? To what extent does it represent Anselm unconsciously importing into his theology the world around him, the feudal landlords and vassals? The term, it is fitting, it is fitting, comes up again. The whole notion of honour seems to be shaped by the feudal landscape in which he operates. I think my own compromised position on it. Anselm is touching on something ultra biblical here. He's a man in context. He's expressing it, using the concepts. Clearly, Anselm's pattern of doing things picked up and transformed while yet retaining much of its originality by people like John Calvin, for example. Honour can become justice and the argument still works pretty well. So you'll find the answer, there are some people who for some unequivocal reason say that the Anselmic argument isn't there in Calvin. It's absolutely fundamental to Calvin for generating his understanding of the Incarnation. He sets it on a slightly different footing. He's not sold on the idea of dictating to God what is fitting, isn't he? The Anselmic pattern is there in Calvin's basic way of generating understanding of who Christ is and what he does. The great strength of Anselm, I think, two great strengths in Cur Deus Homo. One, I like the method. I like the idea of bringing out the inner coherence and interconnectedness of Christian doctrine, which Anselm does. You must go away and read it for yourself to get the full picture. And secondly, 
I think theological systems combined with other things. Come to Aquinas. I'll probably touch a bit on Aquinas's understanding of the atonement. And you'll see there how Aquinas has a whole variety of reasons why Christ, one of which is the Anselmic reason, reduce it to the Anselmic. <clears throat> so then, I've more or less finished what I want to say today. The importance of Anselm, and I'll just listen and I'll take some questions. <coughs> In terms of content, I think his understanding of atonement that we just looked at is crucial. I think it puts to death once and for all. So I've, I just, having said that, I noticed earlier this week that one or two people are trying to give a more positive spin on the, the devil ransom theory these days. But to me, it puts to death once and for all the devil is a great service to the church. I think the devil ransom theory is a red herring. <clears throat> so his understanding of atonement um, important. The ontological argument. It's one of those frustrating arguments that I just know it sounds wrong, but I can't quite put my finger on why it's wrong. Seven or eight hundred years before somebody managed to, and if nobody between Anselm and Immanuel Kant's able to do it, there were quite a lot of very intelligent people operating in them. So I think the ontological proof is important, and it continues to perplex and fascinate theologians and philosophers today, Alvin Plantinga being one example. I think his method, the what he, the method is important in a number of ways. One, I've mentioned the union of piety and speculation, if you like, that is bringing together of contemplation, meditation, and logical practice is central to the way medieval scholasticism will develop. And don't, when I use the word scholasticism, don't be put off by anachronistic notions of scholasticism as dry and dust, blah, blah. Catholic scholars never believe that. Protestant scholars, thankfully, in the last 20 years have come to scholasticism is the theology of the schools. And it was always concerned with the unit of belief. We may not agree with some of their beliefs, we may not agree with some of their practices, but we shouldn't deny that they were consciously trying to relate the two things together. And Anselm stands, if you like, at the start of that. And secondly, his method of going beyond the mere citation of biblical texts or authorities. Here is a man who is generally, genuinely trying to do theology. He's not infatuated with the idea of coming up with new ideas. Those quotations I gave you clearly show that. Anselm is a man for whom, if it's new, it's probably wrong. That's the way culture was in those days. But he is interested in exploring all of the implications of a finite revelation of an infinite God. And as he said, the logical applications and outcomes of revelation are infinite. No single man can exhaust. So he's important, I think, in moving beyond the mere proof text method. He is, I've got my sentence here. He was foundation in developing an approach which combined use of traditional authorities with the ability to push beyond those authorities to new doctrinal syntheses and formulations. And, of course, I think he's significant um, for Bart. Certainly not advocating Bart's theology in this class. But if you want to understand Bart, to an extent you've got to come to terms with Bart's reading of Anselm, which scholars of Anselm generally agree is an incorrect reading of Anselm. But why it's incorrect will be significant of Bart's theology. He's of singular importance. The extent that Barthianism marks is one of those important things to deal with. <laughs>